Hello, good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. My name is Susie. I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning. Our passage is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning again. You know, habits are a very uh, interesting and necessary thing in our lives. I think you all would agree with that. There's a lot of things that we just simply cannot always be thinking about every last thing that we do. For instance, you think about some of the things we just habitually do without even thinking, tying our shoes, brushing our teeth, eating at a table. All of those things, we hardly even think about what we're doing. And that's a good thing because if we were constantly thinking about every single detail of all that we were doing, we would probably go nuts. But there's also a second level of habits where sometimes there are things that we do, there's a lot of habits involved in them. For instance, driving a car, riding a bike, that our mind has to be engaged to some extent, right? Or there'd be danger involved. And yet you stop and think about all the things that you do as you drive a car, all the things that you do as you ride a bike, and you realize there's a lot of things here that are just habit for me. When you come to the spiritual life, again, the issue is there's habits involved. For instance, you read your Bible. For instance, you pray. I trust you do that every day. Those are habits that are important for us, and yet, if they become mechanical, if they're just simply checking off a box, just simply putting in the time, then there's obviously a danger in that. We want to be engaged. We want to be involved. We want to Uh, do this habit, not just simply because it's something to do, but because it actually aligns our lives with God. It deepens our relationship with the Heavenly Father. Christmas is like that too, isn't it? If you stop and think about it, all the things around us that we see that remind us of Christmas and yet draw us away from Christ. So we've got snow, we've got Frosty the Snowman, we've got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we've got elves, we've got Santa, we've got hymns that are played in the background and All of these types of things, it's very easy for us to get lost in the trappings and to just simply say, isn't it a great thing that Christmas is around? And sometimes, therefore, we need to be renewed. We need to have our minds rethought. We need to rethink. We need to remember, remember and reflect upon what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to look at this passage in Luke 2 to be reminded again of the depth and majesty and awe and joy and meekness and humility of what Christmas is all about. And I pray, Father, that as we remember and reflect, we would also be people who would rehearse for others 
what the true meaning of Christmas is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Before we look at Luke chapter 2, reminding ourselves of what God has done, what Luke has done in Luke chapter 1, he's established a stage. He's already talked to at least several people, but specifically to Mary, specifically to Zechariah, to set up two births, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself, to establish the stage for which God himself is setting for his salvation plan to reach its zenith point. Everything is sort of taking shape in Luke chapter 1. So we have these long speeches, speeches both by Mary and Zechariah as well as the angels to these individuals, giving them the good news of what is about to come. So when we come to Luke chapter 2, with all of, the, all of the majesty, as it were, of Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2 is a very interesting narrative for us. Because the majesty, at least initially, is hidden. What I want us to do as we think about this passage, what I want you to engage with me on is this. I want you to remember, remember the awe and the joy and the meekness of Christmas, and then be individuals just like the shepherds who would rehearse the reality of what Christmas is all about. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the very first part of this. God is orchestrating the history here. It's just a simple historical narrative told in very sparse terms, not a lot of uh, adjectives, just a lot of simple verbs describing the activity of what is going on. And yet, behind this, it is just the most amazing, in fact, many theologians describe this as the greatest miracle in history. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, so of all of, as it were, the Roman Empire, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. So right there at the very beginning, God himself is aligning, as it were, the situation, aligning the politics. He is actually aligning the direction to get the people that are going to be involved in the Christmas story in the right place. And God himself is orchestrating this so wonderfully. We don't actually know clearly what census we're talking about here. Because there's nothing historically that we know that Quirinius did around the date that Jesus was born. We know about something quite a bit later than that. So people go into great detail to try to retranslate a couple of these verbs, a couple of the words that are involved in here. Maybe the word first actually means before. Maybe the word governor actually means administrator. And yet we know that Luke is a very detailed historian. So we know that God himself is orchestrating this. He's aligning the situation. And he's doing it in such a way that this actually could be going on for many, many years. The grammar of the passage would allow that. That this is not something that's just taking place in a short period of time. A couple weeks, a couple months. This could actually be going on for years. And we actually know during this time that Caesar Augustus was reestablishing the entire government structure. And he did several censuses during this time, that one of these could be one of those times. Notice, however, the key people, the actors, and how God orchestrates for them. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So notice the key thing. He's getting Joseph 
to Bethlehem. That's the key. That's the point that uh, Luke is trying to make here, the history behind all this. All of this census, all of the things taking place at the political level, Joseph is obeying. And the key thing is the emphasis noticed upon David. He is of the son of he is of the lineage of David, of the tribe of David. He's going to the house of David to Bethlehem. Why? Because we all know in Micah chapter 5, this is prophesied. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, as it were, for the Messiah to be born in the city. He has to get there somehow. He would not have gone normally. And yet, there he goes. Notice it says, in order to register, along with Mary. Why did he take Mary? Mary didn't technically have to go. So what was the issue? We can all think and reason as to why this took place. Well, she was right on the verge of giving birth, but we don't know that. We don't know how long it took. We don't know how long they were there. We have no idea what the reasoning behind this is, and yet he chooses to take Mary with him. On a trip for a pregnant woman, that would have been quite difficult, yet he was willing to do that. Why? Because God was orchestrating the situation. God was behind the situation. He was setting this up for the birth of the Messiah in the city of David. It says, uh, verse 6, and it came about, please notice all the historical things that said, it just kind of came about, it just happened. It came about that while they were there, again, not realizing the time, specifically what's happening, the days were completed for her to give birth. The days were completed, they were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Think about what's happening in that verse. She gave birth to her firstborn son. You think about the majesty that's involved with this, and yet the meekness and the humility that is here in this passage. What are we talking about here, folks? What are we talking about? We are talking about the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, who in ages past has agreed, has established that he will obey the Father and come to the earth, the second person of the Trinity, without giving up a single aspect of his Godhead, without diminishing his Godhead in any way, he took on human flesh. He took on the role of a servant. He came to earth, not as a grown king to rule the world. He came to the earth in the normal human way of being born. She gave birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, a feeding trough for animals. Why? Because there is no room for them in the inn. That word inn can be retranslated just simply as guest room. Bethlehem was probably not large enough to have an inn at the time. So they traveled to this place. Why? Because God orchestrated the situation. He orchestrated, he aligned the history. He aligned, as it were, the people. And I want you to remember again. Remember and just think about the majesty, the meekness, the meekness of the Savior willing to come to the earth. If your theology, if your theology of Christ does not allow him to have to have a diaper changed, then your theology is wrong. That's a profound thought. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, coming to this earth as a baby, as a baby, in obedience to the Father. God himself orchestrates the history. 
So all of that, verses 1 to 7, is said almost silently, almost quietly, almost as if it's just normal happenings taking place. What is the meaning of it? Well, that takes further revelation. And that takes us to the other side. As we remember the meekness, let's remember the awe, or to use it in the phrase that we're used to now, the shock and awe of what is about to take place. Verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. It's said in such a vivid term. You stop and think about yourself. We're sitting, we're outside of Bethlehem. They have to be outside the city far enough so that the sheep don't stray down into the city. We're not talking about Grand Rapids. We're not talking about Detroit. We're talking about Bethlehem, a small village. There's no light out there coming from the city. There's no cars. There's no fire engines. There's no trains. There's no airplanes. Total, absolute silence. The only sound, possibly, of a sheep rolling over and his bell ringing a sheep rolling over and doing other sheep things, that makes some sort of noise. And yet here in this quiet, in this dark, as these men are carefully watching their flock, notice what it says in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Can you imagine that? In the darkness, in the silent, in the quiet, All of a sudden, an angel appears, and it says further, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, completely surrounded them. Angelic glory, God's glory, heavenly glory, immediately in their presence, standing around them. And what would you do? What would we do? What would we all do? The next verse says it very nicely. And they were terribly frightened. The Greek phrase is great. And they feared a great fear. Can't say it any stronger than that. These people are absolutely terrified. You would be, I would be, in the midst of the darkness, having done this for months, if not years, and all of a sudden, boom, here's this angel standing there. What does the angel do? What does the angel say? Well, the angel himself evangelizes them. He evangelizes them. This is the first time historically historically in the Gospels where the Greek word for evangelize appears. The first evangelist of the Bible, as it were, the first evangelist in the New Testament is an angel describing what has just happened in Bethlehem. Notice what he says. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. You are afraid. You have this great fear. Stop being afraid. For behold, it says here in the NASB, I bring you good news of a great joy. I am evangelizing you with great joy. I'm evangelizing your great joy. So you had a great fear. You had a mega fear. Now I want you to have a mega joy. Because I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you good news. I'm going to evangelize you. Good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. So what's the word people mean there? I wondered that myself. Doing a study on the word people in Luke and in Acts, unless it's plural, the word papal always means Israel here. This is a specific message to the people of Israel. All the people of Israel 
are receiving this good news of great joy, this evangelism, this gospel of great joy. But it's not just to them. Hold on, we'll see shortly. That's for everybody. For today, today, in the city of David, please, I want to emphasize something here. That's in the English. The city of David is actually the last part of this verse in Greek. The city of David, in the angel's proclamation, is least important. What is more important is this. For today in the city of David there has been born for you. For you. That's brought all the way to the front. For today. For you. Has been born. Passive tense. Has been born. God himself behind this. A divine passive. What God himself has done. This has been born. Who? Notice what he says. It's a person. Who is this person? How is this person described? A savior. A savior. That's the emphasis. The savior. The savior. Who is Christ Lord? There's no the there. Who is Christ the Lord? Christ Lord. The only time in the New Testament where those verbs, those words appear like that. What is the angel saying? As this glory is shown around these people and the shepherds are listening... There is good news for you, for all the people. There has been someone born today, a Savior. You know what's interesting about that word? This time here and only in John chapter 4 in the Gospels are the only time in all of the Gospels where that word occurs. Paul uses it a lot. The emphasis here for Luke is this is a Savior. A Savior for what? For delivering you from your sin. For delivering you from your shame for delivering you from your slavery, for delivering you from your corruption. But it's not just that he's a savior, not just someone, as it were, who will die for our sins, which we celebrate. He is Christ. He is Messiah. We heard about that last week from Isaiah chapter 9. He is the expected, long-awaited, prophesied king. But that doesn't stop. Aha. He follows that with the next phrase, which must have just shocked them. Savior, we can understand. That's what we've been expecting. Messiah, the king, we've been expecting. He is kurios. He is Lord. In the Greek New Testament, that kurios word is used consistently to translate Yahweh. Think about that. Think about what the shepherds are hearing. The gospel is all about Christ. It's the Savior. It is Messiah. It is God has been born to you. Can you imagine what they're thinking? What does this mean? Well, it's an opportunity for praise, an opportunity for joy, an opportunity for glory. And suddenly... There appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, the armies of angels. Now you think they were afraid of one angel. Can you imagine what the scene is now? As the skies are filled with a multitude of angels, and what are they doing? They are praising God. That word praise is often used for deliverance. It's often used for salvation. But it is always used in the New Testament for what God does. We are praising God for what he does. Notice the direction Glory to God in the highest. We use the word doxology. This is the word doxa. 
Glory to God in the highest. Everything to him who is directing this, orchestrating this, who has borne this child, as it were, into the world. The one who is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. But also, and on earth. So we talked about he being born to the people. This is to Israel and now to the whole earth. And on earth, peace. Peace to men with whom he is pleased, that God himself promises, as it were, salvation through this Savior, kingship and ruler through this Messiah. The Lord himself will bring what? He will bring peace to the earth for men with whom he is pleased, in whom God pours his pleasure, pours his grace into their lives, to those who are called, to those who are believers in Christ peace. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about that in Galatians 5. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's also a result of our relationship to Christ that we have peace with God. And this peace on earth will be established and carried out in our lives as the Spirit of God pours out his work in our lives. An amazing gospel message an amazing gospel message that focuses entirely on who Christ is. He is Savior. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He has been born. I skipped the verse deliberately. I want to come back to that. Verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is a unique child lying in a unique place. That's going to be the sign. Notice, please. Notice, please. The angels never said to them, go and look. They're going to take that upon themselves. The shepherds are now wanting to see this for themselves. What a wonderful explanation. What a wonderful gospel that's been shared with them. Now we want to go see the reality of this, and we want to be able to rehearse this ourselves. Verses 15 to 20. What do the shepherds themselves do. They do exactly what the angels did. They're going to go themselves. They're going to carry out the gospel themselves. They want to see and hear what is the reality of what the angels have just said, verses 15 to 20. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to themselves, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Let us go immediately to see this side. Notice what they say, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known. Same word, the kurios. The Lord has made known. Through the angel, he's made known to us. And they came quickly and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Notice that's the sign. He's laying in the manger. Now they know it's the right baby. It's the right child. And when they had seen this, notice what it says. They made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Can you imagine what the people there are thinking? Can you imagine what Joseph and Mary... Mary knows this. She has been told this in Luke chapter 1, that the person that she was going to deliver, this child that was going to be born, is going to be the king. He's going to rule on the throne of David. And yet to hear this again, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord... This is what the angels told to us. Can you imagine what these people are thinking? Who is this child? 
And when they had, excuse me, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. That word wonder there is one of surprise. It's one of confusion. It doesn't necessarily mean they believed. Amazing statement that they've heard. The shock that they have heard that this child that is laying before them in a manger is the Savior, the Messiah, and Lord. Notice what Mary does, verse 19. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart, reflecting upon the reality of what these shepherds have said. They came, they told, they repeated what they had heard, they evangelized those people, and then notice what they do, verse 20. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God, exactly the same verbs that was used for the angels. They are doing what the angels did. And so therefore we can draw from that that if the angels did it and the shepherds did it, maybe we would be wise to do the same thing. Glorifying and praising God. Notice, for all that they have seen and heard, just as it has been told to them. And the Greek verb there is something that just echoes in their ears over and over and over and over again. It doesn't go away, it doesn't go away, it doesn't go away. This baby, this child is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. So what does that mean for us today? What should we think about about all of this today? Christmas, with all the trappings and all the things that we see around us and all the things that somehow push Jesus down. When Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine writes, writes about who is Jesus, we can say, we know, it's right here, it's told to us by the angels. Christmas is all about Christ. Christmas is all about Jesus. Christmas is all about the person of Christ. And it reflects back on us as we remember the awe and remember the joy and remember the meekness that we can rehearse that to others. Reminds us that God works in history. He's active in history. He aligned all the things for the get, to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that when the times are full, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, prophetically and culturally and politically, he came into the world. God orchestrated that. He works in history. He worked in history then. He continues to do the same for us now. It's a time of joy for us in thinking about the majesty and the glory of what this thing means and therefore causes for us praise, all of the fears that we have living in this world, all the fears that are around us constantly, that are making the news constantly, can be replaced by, stop being afraid, I give you great, excuse me, good tidings of great joy. You had great fear, have great joy. Have trust. Praise God for what Christmas means. You see the picture up there? You know who that is, right? How many times have you seen that show, right? I just read the other day. It first came out in 1965, so I won't tell you how old I was when I first saw that, but suffice to say. I learned something just about three or four years ago about that show. 
that just struck me. Struck me is a very powerful thing that Charles Schultz put into this show. A little detail. Many of you know who that is. His name is Linus. You remember what Linus always had in his hand, right? He constantly carried around that blanket. That blanket was his security. That blanket meant everything to him. You could not take that blanket out of his head, ever. No one could, not Linus, excuse me, not Lucy, not Charlie Brown, nobody could. And yet when Linus steps up, let me tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. He's standing there with the blanket in his hand until he comes to one part where he says, fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy. He drops the blanket. The only time in the history of the Peanuts comic strip that Linus let go of the blanket. Why? Because I now have something I can trust in. What a symbol that was for the whole world to see if we can pick it up. Trust, joy, awe, and praise. Remember who Christ is, folks. Remember the majesty and the meekness of who Christ is because that's the gospel. This is a gospel-centered church. It's not just a message that we, it is a person. It is a person that we talk about. It is a person that we rehearse. It is his identity. He is the one that we trust in for our deliverance from our sins. He is the one that we trust in who will take us to God. He is the one that we trust in. He is our life. He is our life. So in all of the trappings in the midst of everything that surrounds us, I call you, I beg you, I implore, remember the meekness. Remember the awe. Remember the joy. And then rehearse that to others during this time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, it's such a familiar passage. We've seen it, we've read it, it's been displayed before us, we've heard it in churches, we've heard it as a children, children, we've read it to our kids, and yet, Lord, there's so much profundity here. I pray, Father, that you would remind us that we would reflect upon the realities of this passage, and that, Father, we would want to rehearse this gospel, this good news of great joy which shall be to all people a Savior, a Messiah, Lord, has been born. We pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving.